You're tuned into A Kind of Harmony. In this podcast, we're looking to transcend the physical limitations of daily life. In each episode, we speak with a different practitioner who uses sound as a tool or method for connection, transcendence, and healing. We're your hosts, Julia Edick and Amanda Harvey. In this episode, we spoke with Jamila Abu Bakari. She is an artist and writer contemplating refusal, repetition, dedication, and intimacy through sound art, video essay, text off page, and or installation. Whatever the form, she centers black women with care and puts on listening before looking. By doing so, both Jamila and the audience move towards their collective freedom. Her work has played or been shown from Sweden to LA and across Canada, including Contemporary Field Gallery, Circuit Gallery, and Artscape. Her writing most recently appeared in Canadian Art Magazine, and her first curatorial project, Oral Alterities, is on view at oralalterities.com. We were curious to speak with Jamila about her practice as a sound artist, writer, and curator. We wanted to discuss sound as haptic and embodied material, and how care structures could be demonstrated through sound, as well as listening to gain agency through systems of power. So perhaps you can begin by introducing yourself and telling us uh, a bit about your practice or practices. My name is Jamila Malika Bubakari, and I am a writer and an artist. And I kind of understand those two things together when I use the words composition or text off page. So I think, you know, my sound art is a way to think about text, think about citation, think about quoting, you know, to think about the voices and the stories that I want to center. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think about sound like collage. And I'm always really thinking about the subject of Black women. So I'm putting together pieces that I collect over time, whether that's small pieces of writing or whether that's small pieces of sound, that are always focused on the story of people who look like me. And centering those in a gallery setting, I think, is really exciting and special and rare. And also in a literary setting, also special and exciting and and rare. So to discuss a little bit more your work with sound, yeah, you mentioned that you're often working with the subject of the, the Black woman. And I wonder how you work with sound as an embodied material, as a haptic material, how this relates to this kind of very embodied subjectivity. So for me, I think about sound and listening less so much like a an oral in terms of like the ear and this kind of cerebral processing as the experience of feeling sound through the body. So 
When I do like a listening meditation, I always start by saying to people, if the word hearing and listening feels triggering, because maybe you're on the deaf or hard of hearing spectrum, think about feeling. Whenever I say listening, you can replace it with the word feeling because sound is felt through the body. So like one of my favorite sound artists is Christine Sunkim and she's deaf. I understand sound as something that touches and moves us in an embodied way, in like the way that bass is something you can feel. I think on lots of levels, you can feel sound as the way like bass kind of moves, but also in the way that you experience a sound and then you react. So that kind of inner reactivity, that awareness And often I do believe sound and a listening practice are a mindfulness practice. And in this way where if we're really listening for the quietest sound, like the sound of our own body breathing, our ears and shoulders and necks soften. And I'm speaking from the experience of like um, teaching teenagers yoga. If I tell a teenager like, okay, focus on your breath. That's like a really tricky thing. Also, the breath, you know, it goes in and out and in and out. And there's lots of change, but it just goes in and out and in and out. There are pauses if you're getting more advanced, of course. But if I say to a teenager, listen for the farthest sound. Stretch your ears outside of the room we're in. Okay, see if you can hear next door. See if you can hear upstairs. See if you can hear outside on the road. And that is like a cue that keeps most of us more alert. But also something happens in the body where there's softening and letting go. Like I often start a sound talk with a short listening meditation. So people can really feel that because I believe that sound can be abrasive, but that when we're doing the practice of listening, even if it's an abrasive sound, there's something about the quality of quieting down and tuning in. So like Alexis Pauline Gums talks about this in this really great book. It's called Undrowned, and it's meditations on ocean animals and listening. (laughs) And she says that there's a transformative quality in quieting down and tuning in. I really believe that. I, I feel like people are changed. And Nikita Gale is an amazing sound artist who talks about the audience is a sight, right? And like a material and the sound touches them. You know, there's a beautiful piece of writing by this scholar named Tina Camp, where she says, I theorize sound as haptic. And so, like, I can see these examples, right? These examples of, like, these Black women artists and scholars, and they talk about this. And I can also feel this when I do my own practice, right? So I'm reading from Tina Camp here. She says, sound must be understood as a form of sensory contact. And it's an inherently embodied process. You know, and I think even just the use of the word process there, right? Like when we look at something, it just happens. And there's something about our primarily visual society that is like, it's very impersonal looking. Even the preposition to look at, as opposed to to listen to. To listen to, it puts us in relation. And there's something happening. There's like a back and forth between the sound and the receiver.
there's a fellow out in Montreal. His name is Martin Rodriguez, and he he talks about sound as um, like affective transmission, like a vessel, like sound carries me to you, and then I'm with you. There's something about sound that is, I think, this more intimate, personal, touching feeling process. Wow, I think that's so beautiful what you say. So then given if we're seeing sound or experiencing sound as something that is highly relational and that can kind of permeate you, what is at stake for you in considering the ways that sound and listening produce knowledge? And how is it a way of knowing in itself or how could maybe listening be a way of knowing? Okay, I have to say this. I have this little kind of irk with the idea of sound and knowledge production. And I know it's like a popular academic idea. And I've tried to read Annie Goh's work to understand it better because I think there's something there. But for me, I think sound produces not knowing. And I mean not knowing in the sense of Bernie Glassman's tenets of uh, bearing witness. So it's like practice of mindfulness. So the first thing you do is you you don't know, and then you're bearing witness. And then through the bearing witness, you can come up with kind of a more skillful offering, right? And I don't know if it's like, quote unquote, a reaction. I think a reaction happens faster. But okay, so what's happening when we're listening that isn't knowledge production? Toni Morrison writes this thing where she talks about There's one quote where she's talking about movies as opposed to language. And she talks about language as private exploration. And she talks about how in her work, she tries to write in a way that creates an other form of perception. I don't know, even the ways that like knowledge production, it feels to me like almost exploitative or like capitalist doing, right? And I think that putting something into use, like making labor. I think that this private exploration of an other form of perception is less steady than everything we bring to seeing. Like the way that we see something and know is super colonized. All of the systems of power exist in the way that we see something and know. So Alexander Wahili is this great scholar, and he writes a lot about listening and Blackness. And he says, when we analyze the role of vision as it relates to the mechanisms of racism, sound emerges as a space where Black subjectivity is not fixed by the look of white subjects, but is instead articulated dynamically by Black subjects. So I think the thing about sound not producing knowledge is actually really exciting because then we can be more in a moment of private exploration about what actually is coming up for me when I'm listening. I think when people go into a gallery and hear my work, they can't rely on some of the assumptions and tropes that visuality heavily relies on. You know, I've made two pieces of work called Listen to Black Women. It's like, listen to Black women, and then there's listen to Black women again. (laughs) 
And I think I might make a third, but I think this idea of going into a gallery space and being accustomed to all the ways that the female form, the woman, the feminine body has been like just used and overused and abused in a gallery setting. And then particularly think about the ways that Black women are, you know, the quote is the mule of the world, used and abused and overused in the world. That when you go in and you encounter voices, that you have less of that ground to stand on. And what happens is you have to actually think about, maybe notice what's coming up for you a little bit more than were you to walk into a gallery room and see a bunch of pictures of Black women. I don't think you do the same kind of private exploration and the same kind of noticing as when you're you're listening. So I think what it is is sound makes me feel freer and I think it because I don't have to show the body that might have a bunch of baggage attached to it for a viewer by making the viewer into a listener they can encounter that baggage and perhaps free themselves of that a little bit more there's more space for me to feel free and i think there's more space for the listener to get free to maybe notice like oh i recognize that voice i don't recognize that voice i feel this voice as insert adjective abrasive as opposed to you know and i think just the practice of coming into a gallery and listening to a looping track of black women i think maybe when that person goes out into the world and they encounter a black woman on the transit or in their classroom or at their office they've had a little bit of practice to listen on their own and i think what sound does it doesn't produce knowledge but it does give you the opportunity to practice and practice listening skillfully and i think that's really exciting because the stakes there are huge i think if we all were more skillful towards listening like that listening is actually our doorway to care and believing and feeling moved by and attending to each other Wonderful. Thank you. I definitely, now I can definitely see what you mean about listening. Actually, some of the beauty of listening is that it's actually not productive. And these other relational skills and private exploration is actually not at all productive under capitalist society. But the skill development is beautiful. So you mentioned already uh, your series of pieces, uh, Listen to Black Women and Listen to Black Women Again. Um, And so I wonder if you could elaborate a bit on this series, its concept, your process of creation, as well as the ties between listening and liberation. I'll start by talking about Listen to Black Women. So the first version I made in my first semester doing my MFA. Oh, this is fall 2017. So this is like kind of before the uptick in like DEI trainings. (laughs) We've seen, um, you know, since the murder of a lot of Black people by police. Uh, And so I think it was like uh, a time when I was speaking the language of like, what is it to ask for more cultural sensitivity in a classroom? And people weren't actually picking up on it. And it was actually quite a hostile space and I felt like no one was listening. And so 
I thought, oh, maybe I'll change my pitch tone register. Like maybe I'll mimic. I was like, let me do mimicry. Let me just code switch. And then I thought, okay, let me check in with my friends and family. And I, I solicited a bunch of my friends. I said, please send me audio of you talking about talking. You know, about the challenges, about how hard it is, like acrobats and contortionists, like just this talking being really a challenge, being heard, trying to negotiate people into listening. And all that audio I got back and I made it into a soundscape. And I mean, I'll tell you, I was just really sad and lonely. And I just sat in the studio and listened to my friends and family chat about being in the same position and I felt less alone. In that way, it was like really just a healing for me. It was just really like a moment of solace and comfort, like a balm. And I made it, you know, and I kept showing it in different places and doing things like I would use speakers in a formation, like I would kind of create a an inside and outside with the speakers and the wires. And then I, I made a space where the speakers were triggered by movement. So you had to kind of get behind a speaker to make it make sound. And I thought, you know, I collect sounds. And, and what I started to find was that sounds that I were collecting were lining up with this first collection from my friends and family. When I say I collect sounds, I, I mean like I source them online, right? So it's like found sound from YouTube interviews, from speeches, from readings. And I... I realized that these women that I didn't know, so specifically the Listen to Black Women, again, features the voices of Angela Davis, Kiki Palmer, uh, Julie Black, Azalea Banks, and Amara La Negra, and Rihanna. And so I had all of these clips of them, and, and I have others, but I was like, these women who have platforms, who have wealth, who have status, position way greater than my friends and family are encountering the exact same challenge. And they're talking about how hard it is to talk as Black women. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to do this again. And there's something to me about how the two pieces kind of talk to each other, that regardless of like class, you can be struggling in this way as a Black woman to get people to listen to you. And I continue to make this work because like, you know, the New York Times printed this article. The headline was, I felt like no one truly listened. And it's about fibroids and Black women in the healthcare system and how that's a life or death situation. You know, there's several instances of Black women dying in emergency rooms because they're not being seen and they're not being attended to, they're not being heard. And so for me, it's like, okay, like if I can ask people to listen and then think about how they're listening. So sometimes I would mount those works with notebooks and be like a little, a book for listeners to write in. Like, when is the last time you listened to a Black woman? How does it feel to listen to Black women? Like, I'm really concerned, <laughs> you know? And I think that these opportunities where people switch from viewer into listener in a situation where they're listening to somebody who has an experience of being othered, I think this is really important. I center Black women because, you know, the Kombahi River Statement, this like revolutionary group of Black women put together this statement 
I think it was in 1967, I'll check. But they say, you know, if Black women get free, everybody gets free. But I also know that there are lots of other people for whom listening could be, like, we all got to listen more to disabled folks. We all got to listen more to trans folks. We all got to listen more to these people who are telling us things we don't want to hear, necessarily. I curated uh, oral alterities with mostly Black women and non-binary artists and people of color, Indigenous artists, queer, trans, like just asking people who are alive, whose work I think isn't getting enough ears, and in positioning others, people who are othered, alterity, alterity is like an easy way to think about all kinds of others, is to hopefully center these artists who are going to inspire people like them, right? So I'm like, let me put this thing up so that people have a resource. It's exactly what I wanted when I was getting into sound, right? It's got some theory, you know, that's like usually locked up away in the white tower of academia. You know, it's got several resources, like practical references, points people to all kinds of different work. And then it showcases, as exhibits, eight really great different kinds of sound art. It's like a real range of possibilities. So that somebody could connect to the site and be like, oh, wow, sound art is all these kinds of things from all these kinds of different people. When I first found sound art, I was introduced to this like canon of dead white men who were like the figures of sound art, copy and paste, whatever. These guys making like actually really obnoxious work. I was like, where are my people? You know, so I wanted to put out into this world to this thing so that people who feel othered, who are like, okay, sound is a space where I don't have to show my face. Sound is a space where I can find refuge and like hide <laughs> and still express and share, but I don't have to center this trope or trauma porn of my figure formation, whatever trap of representation this visual body brings up for people. Right? So it's like maybe that person goes into a space and they do their own little field recordings. Or maybe they go into their own personal archive of their family. Maybe they record their grandma recipes or something. You know, that somebody would feel like, okay, sound art is for me too. It's not just for these like cis, white, male, Long and McQuaid bros who mount these installations in the gallery that actually are like, alienating, you know? So I put it out there to encourage other folks to find their sound, sound art, sound healing. Right. So I feel like in contrast to the canon of sound art or, yeah, this alienating installations, I feel like your work really demonstrates the urgency of listening and like makes that very clear. Which makes me also think about care, how listening listening can be an act of care, how can creating sound art be an act of care, how curating this exhibition 
or working with archival processes can be these processes of care. Thich Nhat Hanh said, listening lessens suffering. And I think we all know what it feels like when we're listened to, how good that feels and how affirming that is. This is great DJ Bambi out of Toronto who tweeted this like, in the end, it's not privilege, but our inability to really listen to others that makes us uphold these whack and unfair systems we were born into. Like I think listening is felt, you know, and not being listened to is felt as neglect and being listened to is felt as care. You know, listening to me is that bearing witness, it's that attending to, and it can be uncomfortable and it can make us sit with discomfort. But the sounds, this moment-to-moment awareness that we're developing to like stay and listen and quiet down and tune in, I do believe that that is care. It's care for me. I use the word refuge as, as a way to describe sound and sound art. And I think there's a reference of a loophole of retreat. This is like a slave narrative reference. This runaway slave was hiding in a garret, which is like an attic rooftop. And um, I think that a lot of Black women artists right now are just met on a conference by that name, by Simone Lee, who's a, an amazing sculptor, to sit in and talk about where we find freedom and feel free. And so like, I think for me, it's a sense of care. And then for others, I think they get to develop a sense of care for people they don't necessarily interact with. You know, I think it's hard to think about caring for people who you can't listen to, <laughs> right? Like, I don't think in an interview with Brene Brown, Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, she said this thing like, if you can't hear me, you can't see me. Like, I even think that listening helps us see, you know? And in that quote, Tarana's talking about like, you know, like screaming and being, like appearing as silence almost. Like, you know, if you can't hear people's cries, you can't see them at all. So I think sound is really this entry point to negotiating our own discomfort, you know, to attending to someone else, someone different from us, even when it's unpleasant, and to staying in connection. And I think when we start to listen, we can see, I think we can believe. There were these refrains in the past few years after Trump was elected, people were like, listen to Black women, because that vote had been staunchly Democratic, right? But then you know, with the R. Kelly trials, people were like, believe Black women. <laughs> you know, and I, I think those two things, listening to and believing, are things that connect. Listening to and caring for are things that connect. I think listening is really, it's a starting place that's like pretty easy. To listen, you just have to be present. You don't have to respond. You don't have to act. Like you just sit and listen. I think so often in conversation, it's this cliche, like we're not listening to each other. We're thinking about what we'll say next. But when you make a sound art, there's no space to reply. But maybe you listen to the sound art, you leave the gallery and you're kind of thinking, 
you're like replying and you're responding and you're remembering and those sounds kind of loop and stay with you I hope is what I hope you know that something later will remind you and you'll think like oh in a way that is different than if you or I have a conversation we start listening at 26 weeks in the fetus. Hey, I'm totally like pro-abortion, you know, like I'm not saying this anything like fetus is precious. I'm just saying like, it's something we've done for even before we were like in the world. I think it's something that connects us into our body, that connects us into feeling and it makes us more sensitive. Definitely. So we've discussed the ways that sound can kind of help to escape or get out of this trap of representation and about how it's so much a different space than the visual realm. Also mentioned about how hearing someone helps you to see them. Truly. So I wonder how we can use sound or listening to gain visibility or agency to cultivate power against systems which repress, categorize, and dehumanize. I mean, I collect sounds with immense care, even when I'm like editing clips. I'm practicing a kind of care. I think about where I'm putting things next to each other. For me, systems of power are something I try to interrogate within myself. You know, I, I think about the ways that I have power, the ways that I experience power, the ways that I witness power. And I think that it's a practice to continually notice and then to think about ways that I can intervene. And I think that it's always risky and uncomfortable to intervene. But when I can make soundscapes and they can show in the gallery, that's like the safest intervention I towards other people learning to practice noticing power and stepping in whenever they can, right? So it's like, if you come into the gallery and you hear, listen to Black women or listen to Black women again, then maybe you will have an exchange in the future with a Black woman that will be shifted more towards her freedom. I don't think that in a real, in a setting in like real life, if I see a Black woman in distress or in a situation where I'm like, I don't know, maybe she could use my help. I say, hey, you good? That's, what, <laughs> that's my practice. Because I don't want to assume, you know, and like things are complicated and I know that people know what they need best. And so I say, 
hey, can I help you? You know, and then I try to do what they ask or they respect that they don't want my help. But that's like a really practical thing that I practice, that I do. Because if I think about the way systems of power are pervasive and global, I get a little lost. But I do know that when somebody across the world logs into oral alterities, that they'll have this like really cool experience and maybe sit with over time and think, Either they'll like feel heard, feel a sense of connection or inspired. And I hope that their response goes on to shift us towards freedom. The way that I understand Black women's freedom as connected to everyone's freedom is like why I'll always continue to make work about Black women. Because I do, I do believe that when we start to think about gender and race, disability justice and workers' rights and all these things come from that. You know, I think trans Black women have so much to teach us and that when we really start to just listen, I think sometimes we can do a kind of voyeurism when we listen, maybe, you know, maybe you're like watching some show that's like really sensational like P Valley, <laughs> it's like really, you know, people are like, I never interact with strippers or something. So like, let me watch this thing. But it's like, what if you like sat down and like listened to a stripper talk for an hour? Like pay attention, pay attention, you know, to something you might sensationalize, but with your ears. If you stop watching and you start listening, and then you start being really intentional about who you're listening to, you could change your life, <laughs> and then uh, you could change other people's lives. I don't know, sometimes to me, I'm like, the archive is a place of death and stuff. And I like to use the word collection. I don't know, which maybe has like a weird gallery undertone, but it's like more to me, like your quirky, idiosyncratic, personal obsession, right? So like, collection of stamps or whatever your little thing is, right? And it's like, I have files and files and files in folders and folders that have nomenclature that only I understand. I see the kids on TikTok doing this thing that I think is collection right now. They say, can you make this a sound? And I think that's so interesting. Like they want to reuse the sound, the audio, right? In all these different contexts. I think there's something really interesting happening there with young people and understanding sound as this thing that relates us, that connects us, that like I can understand this feeling through this audio. I would like write a whole dissertation on like, what are the kids talking about? Can we make this a sound? What's that about? Because sound will connect us. I'm definitely gonna look into this. I'm also not on TikTok, but can you make this a sound? Wow. I have a million screenshots of this because they comment, please make this a sound, you know? And so it, they're asking for that audio to be kept in a way and circulated. And that's really interesting. That's really alive and connective and responsive and relational. And I think that's what sound can do. Beautiful. Okay, well then my last question is a very general and an abstract one. So through sound, what is hidden and what is revealed? 
Yeah, I love this question. I used to be in a band. We used to wear huge costumes and paper mache masks and face paint, and we used to project video. We would obscure ourselves almost completely. So I think what is hidden is me. I get to hide. For me, that's safety. I think there's lots of ways that people have done this kind of like experiment about like how people receive black women <laughs> and their faces and read them as angry when they're not. When I get to hide, I hopefully get people to kind of key in a little bit more to what they feel when they just listen, as opposed to what they might assume or misunderstand when they see. And I think what is revealed is them, is the listener. And I think that they get to notice without me putting myself in like any kind of danger, right? Without me having to like actually interact with some of their assumptions and baggage. So it's like, I'm safe, <laughs> I hide, and they get to notice. And maybe, maybe that realization is like a quick one, or maybe I'm just planting a seed and like 30 days later or 30 years later, they're like, hmm, I'm not really listening. Creating a safe place for me in the gallery and Black women, it means like removing our image. And what happens to like a person who goes to a gallery who is so accustomed to just like seeing form and curators and gallerists who like put price tags on everything and value and how it will accrue and grow over time, this oil on canvas, right? Sound doesn't do any of that. You can't buy it. Well, you could, you know, people purchase sound rarely, but like, it's not that same kind of marketable, commodifiable thing that's happening. And it's, um, to me, that's like super exciting. Perfect. Thank you so much, Mila. Oh, it's really a pleasure to hear you speak and I think it's very important what you say. Before we finish, is there anything else you wanted to mention? I think I just like for people to check out oralalterities.com and I right now am mothering so I have a small child and I just feel like I'm trying to put together a little manuscript about sound and blackness and freedom but you know if anybody knows a publisher <laughs> be interested. You know, I hope people really take the time to listen and to feel into what they hear and to notice what is revealed when they listen. Jamila's piece is titled, Listen to Black Women Again. I have to say it, I'm a black woman. Black women. I come from a black woman. Determined, fighting black women. Who came from a black woman, who came from a black woman. God bless us. And I'm going to give birth to a black woman. And generations of black women. Generations of black women. Generations of generations black women. Back to 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 back. And I get it, you know what I'm saying? Determined, fighting black women. Why is it so hard for people to understand or accept me? You know, and generations of black women have carried a disproportionate burden in the family as they are determined and were determined 
to keep its integrity intact against the constant onslaught of indignities to which it has been subjected. You get what I mean? So if I say something, I'm saying something for a reason. Like I'm a, like I'm a, I gotta be the bitter black bitch because I like have something to say. The about fact me. that. I even have to answer these questions. The fact that I have to feel as if I have to prove myself um, because every single part of me is being questioned. As they are determined and were determined. Whenever it comes to our things, I feel, I feel, I feel. And I feel like so many times black women say stuff and nobody gives a shit. Excuse my language. Nobody gives a fuck when sometimes black women say something. But somebody of another complexion, somebody of another color, they say something. And then it's like, we're taking it to court. You know, and... It's time to get serious. You know, and... Hashtag me too. And it makes me upset. Why is it so hard for people to understand or accept me? But when, but I'm saying in general, whenever I have to say anything about anything, then it's like, oh, here go this crazy black bitch. Here this da-da-da-da-da. That she refused... That she refused... That she refused... To be treated as less than a human being any longer. So whatever you're feeling, take it to the altar. Because I'm not the one that's responsible for your feelings. And that's really what you're attacking me for? That's really, like, think about it. You have no other, you have no other reason to come at I me. I think people have such a perception of a black woman being so strong that we're just supposed to take anything, anything, anything. And then when we don't, we're weak. Well, no, I'm supposed to get beat down by everybody that comes near me? No, I'll be that bitch. I gotta be the bitter black bitch because I, like, have something to say about it. But at that moment, just to hear that, you don't even know how to react. You don't know if to be, like... The fuck you just said to me right what now? The fuck? But she's also talking about all of the anonymous black women who gave their lives through their participation. I'll be that bitch if that means I have to stand for me and I have to show other young women that you should not let people take advantage of you no matter who they are. I don't care if it was the goddamn president. Oh! So yes. I have to say it. So if I say something, I'm saying something for a reason. I have to say it. We really have to talk about this. You know, I can get crucified for saying things like this, but it is the truth. And I know that a lot of people like to cover the sun with one finger and pretend that the issue is not there. But that's what's happening. That Because nobody wants to talk about it. It's been happening for years, for years and years and years. And, years, and, years, and, and, years. and nobody is actually being vocal about it. I don't like when people think that somebody is just going to be saying something just to say it. Hers has been a desperate effort to make a place of dignity for her people. First of all, I love black people. I love my people. You know what I'm saying? We're impeccable. We are impeccable. We're special and the world is just gonna have to deal with that. So whatever you're feeling, take it to the altar because I'm not the one that's responsible for your feelings. First of all, I love black people. I love my people. You know what I'm saying? And hey, y'all will sweep that shit right under the fucking rug. No, we're just supposed to take anything thrown at us. You know what? Unfortunately, I almost feel that because I've heard it so many times. And it makes me upset. You know, there's this part of me that felt like I don't even want to be mad at you. I, ju I just feel like I should educate you about it. Like, I don't even want to be mad at you because at this point, um, where have you been living? Right. Under a rock? Like, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I can't even be mad at you because kind of like, what the hell? You know, you just lazy. No, she depressed. So until y'all motherfuckers are ready to talk about what y'all owe me, whether the number seven trillion or eight trillion or nine trillion. At the very fucking least, y'all owe me the right to my fucking identity and to not exploit that shit. Nobody really talks about it. We kind of just shut up and take it and just sit back. No, we just supposed to take anything thrown at us. No. It's like black, like a, a black woman can like really sit here and say whatever the fuck she feels like without being shot at or like sprayed by a hose or some shit. We can say without the slightest hesitation that there has never been a single moment in the history of our people in this country when black women were not intensely involved in the resistance struggle. So you get what I mean? God bless us. My mother's raised me to be an incredible woman and she's a strong, 
incredible example of what to be and how to fight through obstacles in life. And I'm sure her mom has also taught her. And that's how I'm going to be. When I speak of black women, I have to. And I'm sure her mom has also taught her. Praise my own mother. And when I reflect upon the long and infinitely rich history of struggle that has been written with the sweat and blood of black women. You have to look a certain type of way in order to be pretty. Your hair needs to be straight and silky in order to be pretty. No, it's not cool. It's not cool because that's not how it should be. That's it. Well, then that's their problem. That's your problem. You know what I mean? That's your problem. You, you're picking and choosing. We come in so many shades. Uh, listen, I'm a creative individual. I have so many shades. We're impeccable. We are impeccable. We're special. Oh, my God. You're so pretty for being a black girl. Really? Um... At the end of the day, I don't wish nobody no ill, but I gotta be down for me. If I'm gonna be down for anybody, I've got to be down for me. So that once black women became involved in the fight for the liberation of their people, God bless us. Then half the battle was won. It's over, it's done, but at least anybody else knows I won't be tried. That's the real point of it all. You have to set your boundaries. You know what I'm saying? I have to let people know. Now y'all know. I must admit that I felt very triumphant to be able to speak. Listen, I talk, I talk about so, and it's so funny because I talk about so many different things. And then, of course, when we speak of the involvement of black women in the struggle, black women who said no, they would not allow another one of their sisters to be swallowed up by the racist monster of oppression, that she refused to be treated as less than a human being any longer. A Kind of Harmony is hosted and produced by Julia E. Dick and Amanda Harvey, with the generous support from the Canada Council for the Arts. This episode was edited by our production assistant, Laura Dickens, with mixing and mastering by Evan Vincent, project management by Christian Scott, graphic design by Mutual Design. A huge thanks to all of our contributors for their generous involvement in this project. If you'd like to support this project and what we do, please follow us on Instagram or subscribe to our Patreon.